Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Today's episode has been sponsored by Jay McLaughlin. Jay McLaughlin is a timeless lifestyle brand with incredible style and a spirit of connection. I am obsessed with Jay McLaughlin and have been so honored that they are sponsoring my Zibiverse tour. It just so happens that the tour goes to so many communities and areas of the country that have Jay McLaughlin stores. And I love that the brand is philanthropic through Jay McLaughlin's local and loyal programming host store events to give back to organizations that are meaningful to Jay McLaughlin's local communities. I also love the fact that the clothes are just so chic. They make me feel polished and modern. And the best part is that most of the line comes in fabrics that don't wrinkle. I especially love the dresses, the cashmere sweaters, the other sweaters. You'll see them all over my Instagram. I typically tag at Jay McLaughlin. And so you can check it out. It is absolutely one of my favorite brands and I am over the moon excited to be working with them. In fact, I want to share the love with all of you. Jay McLaughlin is giving 20% off new customers and listeners of my podcast with special code ZIBBY20, capital Z-I-B-B-Y 20. That's 20% off for new customers and listeners of the podcast with special code capital Z Zibby 20. Take advantage of it today. My favorites are this white open long cashmere sweater that I've been wearing on every flight that I've taken on this tour. I have a blue with light blue horizontal striped sweater, several dresses I even wore on Corny America. Check it out. Jay McLaughlin. Thanks so much. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast that you're listening to right now, thank you so much, called Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. It is a daily podcast, 365 days a year, and each day we talk to an author about all of the things related to their career, their book, their life, and more in 30 minutes or less, because who has time? I am now an author myself, although I wasn't when I started this podcast, and you can get my new memoir, Bookends, a memoir of love, loss, and literature, wherever books are sold starting July 1st, and my children's book, Princess Charming. You can learn more about me at zibbyowens.com, but really, you're here to learn more about the authors, and that is what we're going to do. Also, be sure to check out all the other podcasts in the Zcast Podcast Network. You can learn more at zcastnetwork.com. Com and definitely check out those shows as well. Anne Leary is the author of The Foundling, a novel. She is the New York Times bestselling author of a memoir and four novels, including The Good House, which I loved, soon to be a major motion picture starring Sigourney Weaver and Kevin Klein. 
Her work has been translated into 18 languages, and she's written for the New York Times, Plowshares, NPR, Redbook, and Real Simple, among other publications. Her essay, Rallying to Keep the Game Alive, was adapted for Amazon's television series, Modern Love, starring Tina Fey and John Slattery. She lives with her husband in New York. Welcome, Anne. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss The Foundling, your latest novel. Thank you, Sophie. I'm so thrilled to be here. Uh, thank you. I love your podcast. I'm really excited to talk to you. Yay, I'm excited to talk to you too. And I have to say, I read The Good House when it came out and loved it. And I feel like it's one of those novels that I still have such a crystal clear image of the town and the alcohol bottles and the car <laughs> and like everything feels like I, I like a clear mental image as if I've already seen it as a movie, which is so ironic given that today we're recording on June 16th. I don't know when this will come out. It's premiering with Sigourney Weaver and Kevin Klein at the Tribeca Film Festival, which is so I know. Exciting. It's so, it's just unbelievable that that's happening now because they shot the film a couple of years ago and because of COVID and other things, it's finally having its U.S. premiere. It's actually not going to be in theaters till September, but it'll be at the film festival tonight. And, you know, it, it couldn't be more exciting. And it's also in the middle of my book tour for this book. So it's just a lot. All I do, Zippy, all my life is sit in a room and write and play with my animals. So <laughs> and nothing, you know, so this has been a light, very exciting couple of weeks. And that was just like the icing on the cake because we just found that out recently. That that oh was, my gosh. Yeah. Oh my gosh. My husband actually, he's a producer and they just found out their movie is going to the Toronto Film Festival and they were all like jumping oh, up and down about exciting. it. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I feel like oh, the festival love, I get it. It's, you know, it's... Uh, uh, all that breath holding and then it appears and it's exciting. Right. So. Oh, it's real. It's not, yeah. I didn't dream that there was going to be a movie of my book. That's how I felt. Oh my gosh. And wait, so then what's happening in September? Like with so the movie? It, it, it will be shown at the film festival, but then it won't be in all the theaters until September. It'll be widely released, I guess, is the, how they call it in the film business. But so if you're looking at your local theater after this to find it, you won't see it because it's just at the film festival. I don't really understand how the business works, but for some yeah. well, because it's the film festival. They wanted to be in it, and right, then right. later it'll be in theaters and then streaming at home, like all films. So, oh my gosh! Yeah. Well, I'm I'm doing some events for um uh, where the crawdads sing that's coming out. They gave me all these like screening tickets all over the country, and oh, um, we've given them away to you know people in the moms don't have time to community and um you know trying to help with generate interest. So let me know if you want help when it comes out or if you want to do. So um, you know, not that you need help because obviously it's going to be a huge movie. Oh, but I always need help. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, and now and also I saw um, in the modern love. TV, whatever, Amazon, you know, <laughs> I can't yeah, even no. um, the rallying for love based on your essay right. thing as well. And having married a tennis person, um, I related very deeply to that as well. So <laughs> anyway, for many reasons, I'm excited to be connected with you. Um, and now the foundling. Um, yeah. Amazing. So why don't you talk a little about this? I know you explain um, in the introduction to the book uh, why, how this is a personal connection to you, but maybe go into that and explain a little more about what your latest novel is about. Okay. Well, I'll just quickly say the novel um, is about, it's set in 1927, and it's about two women who were childhood friends. They grew up in the same orphan asylum, as they called them in those days, and they meet up 
as a young adult in a different kind of asylum, but they're no longer roommates. Mary is the actual, she's a new secretary to the very dynamic and charismatic female doctor who runs the place. And Lillian is an inmate um, held there against her will um, at what turned out to be a eugenics asylum. I, uh, what inspired the book and why it's connected to my personal, you know, I have a like personal connection to it. Um, I, uh, over 10 years ago, did what many, many people did. I joined Ancestry.com. I wanted to find out. I had a few questions about my family. And one of them, which I thought would be the easiest to answer, was um, why my maternal grandmother was an orphan. I knew she grew up in an orphanage, and I didn't know what happened to her parents. And I still don't know that. I, it turns <laughs> out it's really hard to find out orphan information, uh, orphan rec- orphanage records. The first record I found of my grandmother she was in 1930. She was working at a very large institution for women in central Pennsylvania. And it was called the Laurelton State Village, according to the census record, the Laurelton State Village for feeble-minded women. And I was a little taken aback because I thought that was like a very like awful name for a, a government institution. I did a quick Google and I found out that wasn't even the whole name. It was actually called the Laurelton State Village for feeble-minded women of childbearing age. They just couldn't fit the whole thing on the top of the census. (laughs) So I learned quickly that feeble-minded, the word feeble-minded, like the words idiot, imbecile, and moron were clinical terms at the time. They were not, uh, they probably were slurs too because people were not very nice to people with disabilities at that time. But they were not, it it wasn't as odd as I thought it was to have that in the name of the thing. It turns out the very cruel and a f- most offensive part of the name of the place was the of childbearing age part because I learned this wasn't a training school for people with true intellectual disabilities, as I had presumed, though there were a small percentage of women who did have you know true disabilities. This was a place, uh, this was a, a place to keep women who were morally or mentally unfit from uh having children, from having sex, from um, you know, and some states. Um, I, I can talk in a minute about eugenics. It don't be like for the audience, if you don't know anything about eugenics, it's not your fault. We weren't taught about it in school. I knew very little about it before I started researching this book. In the 1920s, it was a household word. Everyone knew about it. It was a very popular, widespread thing. And it wasn't a hate a little hate group or anything. It was very much, uh, it was kind of the law of the land. So the true purpose of this asylum was, um, you know, to keep young women uh, who were deemed to be unfit for many reasons um, from having children. Well, tell me when you did your when you did your research, what was it people were so afraid of? Did they right. think it was unethical for kids to have? Which were the types of people that? Because yes. you said it was not just the feeble, it was not just the um, intellectually disabled, but who were the other types of people right. that were inmates? So, right. So um, basically, just a quick, um, you know understanding of the eugenics, what eugenics meant. Um, it was a kind of considered a science. It was something that in the early 20th century, there was this wonderful, what they thought a progressive new science that was kind of like social Darwinism. And it was basically, you know, on, on the surface, it looked kind of nice. Like, you know, it was the, the whole idea was like people who are very uh, fit and healthy should have more children and people who are like have issues, maybe disabilities or otherwise, not, you know, or, you know, are unable to take care of children, should have less children. It was not really at all what it 
became very quickly, especially in the United States, the United States practiced negative eugenics. Most people who do know about eugenics are aware of the forced sterilization of men and women who not only had disabilities, but might belong to a race or a a type of a group of people or very usually very poor people who they thought shouldn't have children and they were forcibly sterilized, uh, sometimes without even knowing somebody might go in to get their appendix out and come out without uh, with their tubes tied. So um, in many states that wasn't allowed and Pennsylvania was one. So what they did was they warehoused the people and especially the women, the place where my grandmother worked was specifically for women of childbearing age. And what that meant was um, if you were perhaps a woman whose husband was tired of you, it's very hard to get a divorce in those days. Uh, if you were 13 and said your uncle, who was a prominent member of the community, was touching you inappropriately, if you were a, a prostitute, it was very, people were very poor or very rich in those days. And if you were poor, it was a coal mining state, you know, a lot of industry, there's always going to be some prostitution. If you were drinking, it, you know, it was against a lot of drink. So many things could get you, could could have you sent here. Um, eugenics uh, beliefs were that criminality was very much tied in with heredity. And everybody who was a criminal, mm-hmm was absolutely feeble-minded or they wouldn't have been a criminal. The idea was that normal people with healthy brains and, you know, good reasoning would never commit crimes. So it was very easy to suddenly uh, label a huge part of the population as being feeble-minded, especially on the moron level. So I hate the girl alert guys. And I did a, I did an author's note just because of this. So these are the hard words to hear, um, but they were the words of the time. So, Idiots were the lower lowest IQ of the feeble-minded. Imbeciles were like medium, uh, moderately intellectually impaired. And morons were very high. They called them very high functioning. And the person who coined the term was a eugenics, you know, like one of the pioneers of eugenics. And it really referred to the, what they called the morally defective people. Mm. So think like you, yeah. it basically made it, it made them, it gave the government, communities, people the ability to basically you know stick that diagnosis on anyone you didn't need a doctor you didn't need a judge uh you could be sent here by your husband by your father your child you know whatever um it was a very very um awful thing i mean it was fascinating to research i was very surprised and um you know saddened by some of the things i read I loved writing this book in the 20s. The 20s was always my favorite era of the United States, but I had a different impression of it when I before I researched this book. I always associated it with decadence and like Zelda Fitzgerald and you know Daisy Buchanan and flappers and drinking because it's you know when you're not supposed to. And that was the 1920s if you were rich. If you were poor in the 1920s, like my grandmother and most Americans, you know, or many, you know, more than you know, half the Americans, um, you, the same behaviors that the rich people were doing, uh, you know, drinking, going to speakeasies, um, having sex outside of marriage. If you were rich, you could do that. If you were a poor woman, you were considered a menace to society and you would easily uh, end up in a place like the one where my grandmother worked. And it was not a great place to be. It looked nice on the outside, just like the eugenics movement, but the treatment of this, these women 
was horrible. It's really amazing that that this is what life was like, you know, like all these little, and also, also all these little pockets of history, which have essentially been erased. Um, yeah. you know, it's almost like, I, I feel like if somebody were doing an analysis of mental illness treatment in the U S it would, yeah. there would be a, maybe a little footnote about this, right. Cause it's essentially, yeah. but only, but mental illness, of course, as you say, is only a, a little piece of it, but, but still it's like, also, yeah. So this was actually interesting. So mental, this was soon, you know, around the turn of the, that century. So between the eight, uh, 19th and early 20th century, they realized that the mental intellectually disabled should not be institutionalized with the people with mental illness. They're two different things. So that was part of this. So they, they didn't have homes for quote unquote, people minded or intellectually disabled people. So these weren't people who had schizophrenia or they, they right, right. depression. They were people who were considered born with, a, you know, less intelligent, you know, with a de- deficit in their intellect. Um, so, the, you know, uh, my research uh, showed that there were asylums like this all over the United States. And I researched many and came up with the story based on what I learned not only about the place where my grandmother worked, but about many others. And I and and then the reason a lot of people today don't know about eugenics, it was why, like I said, it was very popular. It was widely uh, accepted. People such as Theodore Roosevelt, Winston Churchill, uh, you know, Margaret Sanger. Some people know now George Bernard Shaw, Virginia Woolf. Many people that I've always admired, who did great things, um, were outspoken eugenicists, but you have to understand that again, everybody, you know, it was a kind of, there were laws passed that were eugenics laws. So it wasn't like a fringe hate group. It was kind of this widespread thing. Was it racist? It was super racist, but going through the newspaper archives of that time, everyone was, you know, it was just like a very racist, overtly xenophobic, anti-immigrant, you know, time and very, very uh, dangerous time for women. And um, so... When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Okay, so you so you do all your research and you realize you want to write a whole novel about this, and then what happened? You figured so, out your yeah, character so I, I, and what's the I, process. I, 
I originally was going to just write, I wanted to write like kind of a nonfiction journey of discovery about what I found out. But I really do like to write fiction. I love to, I do have a kind of a vivid imagination. And as I was reading three people in my grandmother's story kind of came to me, my grandmother, uh, who I didn't know very well. Um, but, oh, you know, she went there when she was only 17 and was working as a stenographer. So I, I, I kind of, you know, I wanted to, you know, maybe have her be a character. And then the woman who ran the place where my grandmother worked was a woman named Dr. Mary Wolf. And she fascinated me. And I was quite impressed and in awe of her when I first read about her. She graduated from medical school in 1899 when very few women went to college. She then became one of the first psychiatrists in the United States. She then founded this amazing, you know, very progressive asylum that became a model for, I mean, it was considered amazing at the time. Um, Delegates from foreign countries came to see this institution because it was so well-run all the inmates, as they called the residents, did all the work. So it actually didn't rely on the government for much funding at all. It was self-sufficient. So, uh, but she was also very, out, she did speeches all over the state to raise money and awareness. She wrote, so I could find a lot of things that she wrote and said, and she was quite amazing. She also was an avid suffragist. She was a very much, I thought, what an amazing woman. And she did care, I do believe, very much about vulnerable women in society. She came from an affluent home and had more power than most women. I created Dr. Vogel in my book based on her. And so, as I said, you know, you know, I don't want anyone to connect the fictitious character with the one who inspired her, only that I'm glad I found her because she, I think, is the most, to me, was the most fascinating person to explore as a character for my novel. Mary is, came to work for her in, in real life. That's Mary did work for a woman like that. And then Lillian is, is the character in my novel who grew up with Mary in this orphanage. And Mary doesn't remember her being feeble-minded at all. She was actually kind of smart. Well, um, Lillian came from my going through decades of uh, census records through newspaper archives and finding all these young women who had these promising lives taken away from them. And uh, just one character came to me who was kind of, you know, made up of all these women. Uh, I found a few cases where mothers tried to get their daughters out and said, you know, she's completely, she has no, she's not feeble-minded. And they never won. They had habeas corpus, you know, cases, and they never won. And I'd go and look, and there she was in 1927 census, and there she, at 18, and then the 1930s, she was 28, and then it, it broke my heart. And I wanted to create, you know, I wanted to have one of, you know, Lillian is the character who's inside, and so there's just it's a book about these three women and how. Um, Mary is kind of the narrator and she brings the reader in the way I came in, very awed and impressed with this place. It was quite an attractive asylum as asylums go and a very beautiful, very rural part of Pennsylvania. And um, then I, you know, I wanted the reader to understand Mary's vulnerability. And I knew they might judge her from today's perspective. A lot of her, a lot of everything that went on was so uh, unsavory and hard to to be a part of as a reader maybe but I didn't I couldn't be anachronistic and make her very woke uh because it wouldn't be real and so anyway well so Mary though was not totally an orphan they called her a semi-orphan because her dad was alive sorry half orphan I Um, love hearing that term I was like right I'm like what is that like you're half a person yeah 
Mary was a half orphan and Lillian was a foundling. Another thing. So there's so or, an orphan is somebody, both your parents die, the people know who they were, and you now live in an orphanage. A half orphan, there were many half orphans, and you might Zibby, and many people listening might have had a relative who was a half orphan. It wasn't uncommon before antibiotics and you know, before modern medicine. Um to lose a parent at a young age, especially, you know, this took place after the First World War. So um, Mary's mother died when she was a child. She had a father who was alive, but he worked at some mill upstate. He couldn't have take care of her. So she was a half orphan. She lived, the, you know, nuns raised her. And that was true of my grandmother too. Um, Lillian was a foundling and no, you know, just like a baby who was dropped at a church mm-hmm. you know, uh, or at a doctor's office. So um there's a distinction between them. And I, I, I named the book, The Foundling because of Lillian and, and other, uh, other reasons. I thought the, the word really applied to the book. Um, tell me about the suitcase. So you have the suitcase okay. take a, a central role in the beginning of the book, this beautiful whitish off whitish suitcase with satin where they find a mother's garter that like comes out right at the beginning to the horror of the nuns. And um, then she ends up packing it and bringing it with her to the asylum. Um, I felt like that was such a great little symbol for the voyage we were going on as the reader, right? That here we were like getting ourselves all packed up and ready to go as you drive us down this and, you know, getting stuck on the side and driving us down to this very wooded, um, mysterious place. Um, so tell me about that. And if it was, oh my God. To be you're, a the first, you're the first person who's asked me about the suitcase and the suitcase to me is the most, like to me, I was afraid it'd be too heavy handed of a kind of metaphor, but I, uh, but it's very important. So yeah, she has only one thing her mother ever owned. And it was this very nice women's traveling cases. They called them in those days, the suitcase. And, um, Maybe uh, I, I'm glad that no one's asked about it because I was afraid it might be too heavy handed, but I I did have the nun open it and it I kind of wanted it to be very um, sexual. And so the description of the suitcase, if you read, you know, you'll see it might remind you of like a very feminine part of our bodies, but um, it's something, you know, the nun is shocked by. And so sexuality and femininity is a very much a theme of this, but it's also Mary carries it through the whole book. She has it with her and the suitcase changes her, her way, the way she sees first, she thinks it's the most beautiful thing and very, very fancy. And then when she's exposed to really very, very nice things by the rich doctor who takes her under her wing and a little bit takes advantage of Mary's motherlessness to manipulate her. But suddenly she starts to, and this hasn't this happened to many people where when you grow up, a thing you were so proud of, then you become, oh, you, you realize it's not as amazing, as special. And then she's almost ashamed of it at the end. And so there's many things. I'm so glad you know one person. <laughs> I've, and I've had a lot of interviews and done a lot of talks, but no one's, I kind of forgot about the suitcase, I, but it's a very important thing. And um, I, so thank you for asking that question. It, it, Mary also has secret, a, a very, very shameful secret from her childhood. And I felt too, that that was sort of part of like, you know, she's, she, that, you know, it's all hit part of hiding mm-hmm. things that have to do with, you know, her secret did have to do with, you know, childhood sexual abuse. And so she was, it was very much about like, just like keep it inside. And it had to do then with like some of her decision-making regarding whether she would be able to help Lillian, her friend, uh, and for, you know, and this is an exploration of female friendships. I mean, she and Lillian, I felt, I wanted to show how, you know, especially when we're younger, the way we were with our friends as children, female friends, how much we love them. And then mm-hmm. sometimes 
hated. You know, it was like this thing of, and and um, it turns out, you know, she and Lillian share a secret, and that comes, you know, that's not a spoiler, but um, you know, that that is part of the um the, the plot. So interesting. Um, one thing that you know, as I referenced with the Good House, that I just feel like you're so good at creating a setting um like that how do you do that like i the even even the drive even like yeah. the the car even like not not all books sort of really immerse you into such a visual sensory place like oh thank you so much no so i when i wrote this so i'd been researching it but i was finishing my last novel the children i had to finish that when i handed in the last draft i got in my car it was december not a great time to drive from new york state to central pennsylvania well i first drove to scranton where the book begins where my grandmother grew up in the orphanage and then i drove the route she would have taken there now of course there wasn't an interstate highway i knew it would have taken her many hours longer than what it took me but I really got a sense of the countryside and a lot of Pennsylvania, that part of the country hasn't changed. I was just there. I did some book events in Pennsylvania. It was very emotional going back because I, I did research this. I went back a few times to Harrisburg to visit state archives. I went to the asylum. It's closed now, um, but it's still standing. And so I, you know, I made note of what I, you know, of the, the, the kind of what it looked like. And, um, you know, so yeah, I, I also, really love um you know kind of gothic um 19th century english novels and mm-hmm. so i think i i that kind of um the, i think the description of them going there and then the kind of scary like the winding thing and not knowing yeah. i moved a lot as a child i had i know what it's like to leave a place and not, and and go to a new place and not know what lies ahead and it's a scary thing and you know at one point like she goes to this gate and it's closed behind her and she has this moment i yes. think I really, I've had that in my life of, you know, being plucked from one place and placed in another. And at those times, you're very aware of your surroundings. It's probably a primitive instinct to just, so I, I, I'm glad that you, uh, you noticed that, but yeah, she, she, she's very, I I wanted her journey there to be kind of, because it's, she's, she's about to, her life is about to be changed very much. Um, for the better and for the worse. Wait, so why did you move around a lot and where, where are these places you moved? <laughs> so my dad was in the army when I was little and then he just was um, kind of, I don't know, just very, a variety of reasons. We did move a lot. He would change jobs. And so we lived in, uh, when I was 14, we moved to the North Shore of Boston where my the good house was set. But before that, we had moved about 14 times. Many of those times was when I was a baby. But on this book tour, I was going to Wayne, Pennsylvania, mentioned to my mother and she said, oh, we used to live in Wayne. That's where your sister was born. Like that. Oh my gosh. Know, it's great on a book tour because usually, especially in the Midwest or the Eastern United States, I can often say, hey, I used to live near here. <laughs> and I did. But um, yeah, so I I think that's helped me as a writer too, in that I, you know, we moved, for example, from Racine, Wisconsin to Marblehead, Massachusetts. They couldn't be more culturally different, but it really gave me, you know, when you move a lot, you're prone to being bullied, you know, by as the newcomer at and so it was really important to my siblings and to me to fit in. So I think I really, A, became very aware of the way people talk. And I think that's helped me as a writer. I became very, very, because it was very important to immediately sound like the rest of the people, <laughs> the rest of the kids. Yeah. And then I was very aware that, 
everybody's the same, really. Wherever you go, there was a cool girl, there was this girl, which I don't think people knew in the town I moved to where everyone grew up there. But also um, that helped me write a, a historical novel. I know everyone was the same then, but also that, um, you know, I was aware, I just, I guess I was very much a person who studied the others to, to fit in. And it helped me as a, you know, probably as a writer to, you know, now I, when I'm writing, I'm, I'm very aware of, um, you know, the little things about the way people behave. I, you know, I like to study the the people. (laughs) (laughs) I I like to watch the people and then try to write about them. So I think that helped a lot. There is there is power in in being an observer that I yeah trying to fit writer. in all I want yeah. I just want to fit in. <laughs> but I think it's um, about to create characters that don't feel like they fit in, or, or that have you know that, that are desperate to fit in, and that was very much Mary, the main character's uh, you know part of her makeup was wanting to be accepted and loved, feeling non being born feeling not loved and trying to find love. Which essentially is one of those deep human instincts, right? We're all just at the end of the day trying to find love and fit in. It's, an it's actually like a, a, it's a need. I think it's a, I, it's something I read. I mean, you, if you don't have that, you might not survive. Uh, yeah. Certainly, you know, I think they've done studies with babies or something. But yeah, you have to have some sense of, uh, you know, uh, and you have to love, you know, in some way. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to, you need to nurture. And nurture yeah. and love might be the same thing. But if you don't feel nurtured, if you don't feel love, you could be very very much impaired in today's world and probably throughout the history of humanity. <laughs> well, there we go. We loop it all together there. <laughs> Not a scholar, just my take. No, you're absolutely right. Um, oh my, this half an hour has like flown by in two seconds. I feel like I had a thousand more questions to get to know you better, but um, hopefully more to come at some point. Um, I would love to come anytime and talk to you more. And um, thank you so much again. And thank you for doing this podcast. I think it's really been filled such a void, especially during COVID for, for authors, uh, for booksellers, everybody, you've done a really amazing service. And I thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you so much. And congratulations on both the foundling and the screening tonight and all the good things to come. So, okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks, Anne. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.